Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And it's a reflection, I think, of of my politics as well. Like, I'm not ardently, like, and, like, aggressively, like, gay marriage, it shouldn't be legal, it shouldn't. But I was, I was always one of those, you know, uh, annoying people on the internet where it was like, what about in housing <laughs> protections and employment protections before this other yeah. thing? That Because those things are things that affect all of us. And, like, a lot of my jokes boiled, start from this place where of, like, obnoxious, like, um, political stances that I <laughs> very important to me, and I'm like, how can I water this down into something stupid? Yeah. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This week, we're going into the Good One Vault to bring you an episode from June 2019 with Joel Kim Booster. Joel is having a dang moment right now. Last week, Fire Island, the Jane Austen updating rom-com he wrote and starred in premiered on Hulu. Soon, his first hour special, Psychosexual, premieres on Netflix. And in a few days after that, you'll be able to see Joel and Loot, the Apple TV Plus's Maya Rudolph vehicle. When we first spoke, however, all of these things were but a dream for Joel. He had just come off a recent appearance on The Late Late Show with James Corden and began to fully embrace an emerging gay fan base. Comparing it to his 2016 late-night debut on Conan, we discuss how things changed for him comedically and how comedy had changed in general. If you want to read a current interview with Joel where he talks about Fire Island, we'll include a link to my colleague Alec Jung's incredible profile that ran on Vulture last week in the show notes. So here is Joel Kambooster. I should have peed first. I'm so excited. I am so excited mostly to get to perform here in L.A., my home. I love this city. It's so exciting. My one beef with L.A. is that it is a driving city, and when I moved here, I had to start driving for the very first time, and boy, am I bad at it. Uh, It is rough, and when you're a bad driver with this face, it's a real nightmare, let me tell you. It is... No fun. I feel like I've seen every version of, of course, face in L.A. And I don't appreciate that face. I don't appreciate that face one bit. Every time I see it, I just want to roll down my window and be like, excuse me, sir. No, no, no. I'm not a bad driver because I'm Asian. I'm a bad driver because I won't wear my glasses and I text, okay? It's a personal choice. I don't want to be good at this. I will die in my Nissan Sentra. It's just, driving is so hard, you know? Like, there's so many places you're supposed to look. And... 
I can't be bothered. I've just got cooler stuff going on up here, you know? I, I won't. I love LA. The people here are wild, though. You guys care about a lot of things that I don't care about. Uh, recently, I got in trouble in my own home for trying to kill a spider. My friend uh, was like, no, Joel, if you spare the creature, it will kill the other bugs in your apartment. And I was like, well, that seems worse. I don't want to work from within the bug community to get rid of the bugs, you know? Like, it's so nefarious. Like, what am I, a member of the Reagan administration? You know, like, terrible, okay. I'm so glad some of you understood that joke, because I didn't. Uh, I'm very stupid, you see, but I own it. I find a lot of people these days don't own their stupidity. Like, I am constantly having to end conversations with my friends by being like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't think either of us read enough books to be talking about this, okay? <laughs> Why are we arguing about the estate tax? You're a dog walker and I'm a musical theater major. <laughs> stop yelling at me, you know? It's tough. I was raised in a very stupid community, so I don't really like to go home very often anymore. The only reason I do go home is because my older sister, she still lives there and she started having babies. And I love being an uncle and I love spending time with them and just sort of soaking up all the Instagram engagement that I can while they're young. <laughs> I also think it's really important to spend time with them because I don't think that kids are in the cards for me personally. Like, don't get me wrong, I think it's so great that there are so many gay dads in the country. Give it up for gay dads. Um, but I also think it's wrong. I do. Um, and, and that was a trap, and you fell for it. So here's the thing, is that I believe that gay men, we were put here as population control, and I think every time God above sees two gorgeous men raising a child, he's like, oh, no, 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 you have misunderstood the assignment. Uh, and it must be so frustrating for him because we're so much better at it, you know? Like, just put yourself in his shoes for a second. Like, you've got this national park, and it is overrun with deer. So you release some wolves into the neighborhood to get rid of some of the deer, and then the wolves start raising high-functioning deer, you know? Oh my God, they named that deer Atticus, and they've opened up a Montessori school! It's out of control! I, I clearly, I don't actually believe that I'm joking, although my dad did have two sons, and they both turned out gay, and I don't think there's a clearer sign from God that he is done with this bloodline, you know? It's just... Had enough boosters for one generation. Thank you. The real reason I think I won't be having kids anytime soon is that I am very, very single. Stop freaking out. Um, it's, it's all right, though. I'm, I'm out there. I'm on all the apps in LA. Right now, my apartment is just a revolving door of strangers. And uh, that's fine for me. Some of my friends are a little concerned. They're like, Joel, you don't know these people. Like, aren't you worried that one of them could murder you? And it's like, yeah, that's a pretty big draw for me, honestly. Like, because my thing is, if I've been murdered, I've still been picked, you know? And that, ultimately, is the point of dating. Either way, I get to stop, you know? And what a relief. I recently went on a pretty promising first date, though. Uh, he took me to a Mexican restaurant here in L.A. that had something I had never experienced before. It had table-side guacamole. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's just a little cart that your server rolls up next to the table, and they make the guacamole right there in front of you. And I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand why we're pulling back the curtain on guacamole, you know? It doesn't make any sense to me, like, why here, why now? There's no theater to guacamole. It's not an interesting process. In fact, it's kind of a distraction. I'm sitting there across from my date trying to walk him through my student loan debt. Meanwhile, <laughs> Danielle can't get the pit out of the avocado. And it's just like, 
There's no mystery there either, Danielle. We all know how guacamole is made. Of all the things to bring back out of the kitchen and reveal to us before our very eyes why the guacamole, here's an idea, Danielle. Bring out the lava cake and show me how you got the lava in there! So, long story short, I did not get a second date. Uh, you guys have been so fantastic. I'm Joel Kambuster. Have a great night. So I'm here with the comedian behind that set you just heard, Joel Kimbooster. Thank you for being here. Hello. Um, it's so funny because I was thinking, I know I gave you the option of the two, of all the late night sets, basically. I There's the closer of the Corden set. I sort of half retired after Corden mm -hmm. and I cannot really remember the joke anymore. <laughs> it's fine. We'll talk about well, the well, Okay, great. I, we'll I, talk I, broadly I, about that one. I think I could sort of get there if I needed to tell I think it it'll be today. fine because I think that one you don't have to tell today but it is it's a performance that part is performance driven but let's We'll, we'll, right. we'll build to it. I'm always just terrified that I'm going to be doing stand-up and, like, see tableside guacamole, like, in the audience. So, like, I'll be at a comedy club where they do it, and I'll feel sort of obligated yeah. to do the joke. <laughs> like, um, the audience like, I, do tableside And I won't be able to do it. I actually, w I literally was in um, Mexico this weekend, ordered guacamole at a restaurant. It was tableside. Said nothing. I was sitting at a table with two guys who have never seen, who are unfamiliar with my job at all sure. and like don't give a shit. And I was like relieved. And then someone walked by and was like, oh my God, it's so funny that you're sitting getting tableside guacamole. I thought you hated this. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> but let's, let's back up a little bit. So this was recorded in 2019. Your first late night appearance was on Conan in June 2016. Wow, yeah. So that's about two and a half years. So I just want to touch lightly on the Conan set and specifically the joke. So as you can imagine, it was a little weird growing up in the Midwest with this face and that family. I mean, I literally knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian. Uh, <laughs> it, uh... It actually came as quite a shock when I finally found out. I'm what? You know, like, uh, but it's so What did that joke mean to you? Um, or for your sort of stand-up art? I, I'm not even sure, like, when the genesis of that joke occurred. Because it is, A, real. It is just, like, a true fact about me. Like, I really did. That is, like, um, you know, a big part of my background. And it just sort of succinctly sets up, like, a huge part of... My background, which is a, you know, I am Asian. They, nobody needs background on that. They <laughs> sure. can see it. Um, I'm gay and I'm adopted. And that sort of just encompasses all three of those um, signifiers in a joke. And I think, I mean, truly, I believe that is just something I've been saying to people in conversation for years. Probably yeah. since college, I've had that line. Because it's just like, um, like people will be like, oh, you're adopted. That's so cool. And like, <laughs> or like, they'll ask questions. That, I don't know. It's just like, a, it was like a party trick for, yeah. so, for a while. And it was, this was like, even before I ever thought like stand up or comedy was like, available to me <laughs> so, um so yeah i think that it just was something that i would say in conversation and then eventually slipped it in on yeah. stage and it worked because it, it it would always get a laugh like in conversation and i don't write um i don't write anything word for word down i, I do most of my writing on stage and so a lot of it even is even at like the beginning trial. oh yeah so much of it is trial and error. Like when I was doing stand up in Chicago the first year, I didn't even, I was so bad at just the sort of the artistry of stand up and like the mechanics of stand up. I didn't know you were allowed to do jokes more than once. 
I so I did a five minute set the first time I did stand up, did really well. In fact, that joke might have been in there. That uh, I I don't exactly remember most of the jokes that I did then in that first set. And then over the course of several months, would do like more and more sets and do like five to eight minute sets at shows, and would write a new five minute set or a new eight minute set every yeah. single time because I I truly didn't know I was allowed. I thought people would like know i don't i don't know how i thought at the that early of a stage being essentially an open mic that the word would spread that i had used the same joke in two different bars but um yeah i grossly misunderstood the assignment yeah so then by this point which is you know you've been doing comedy for a while you've learned your latter repeat joke What? In fact, that is honestly, I I am a masochist and I read at all of my YouTube comments um, occasionally, and that is the I so so much of the hate is so over the top that you can't even be affected by it because yeah. it's just like they don't even seem like real human beings after a while when they're spewing so much hate. And I think it's younger people and people who are only experiencing me on YouTube and um, where they're like, wait, he said this joke in a different thing. Because the thing is, is I've I've been on television doing stand up in a lot of different countries as well and they all sort of end up on youtube and i never think about them ending up on youtube when i'm doing them i'm i'm very aware of like legally what material i'm allowed to reuse in different contexts and um sort of standards and practices wise because here's the thing about all of my late night clips it is representative of me in a sense of how I am as a comedian, but the reason I don't do late night more is because it is very hard for me to find five minutes of material that strings together that I am allowed to say on yeah, television. Yeah. Um, it is very yes. clean material. It is very clean, television ready, and some of it I even have to fight for still. And so it is like frustrating to read people be like, oh, he only has the same five minutes. And it's like, bitch, listen to my album if you want like yeah. an hour of material of mine or come and see me live. Like I write a new hour but essentially every year. It's yeah. just most of it can't go on television. So when you write, it's you're, you're riffing on stage, you then record it and listen back or you just yeah, write your memo? Um, I'm a voice memo uh, queen. I, I, I have my little phone on the stool recording everything. And I, d- I, ten- I don't tend to listen to every set uh, immediately I will eventually like get to the point because I have a fairly good memory it's like the one um, like trick and, and thing that I was blessed with is that I have a very very good memory um, and so I can mostly remember everything but there are little things that get lost like little inflections or little like um, throwaway lines that I'll forget about and I'll go back I'll come back to usually I'll listen to my sets on planes um, when I'm getting ready to headline at a club and I'll be like, oh my God, I totally forgot about this. Like the spider bit yeah. in the Corden set is something that I said in Boston in June of like 2018. And um, uh, Lisa Traeger, who is a, a friend and a, 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 an amazing comedian and someone I look up to a lot, told me once that she tries to leave every headlining weekend at a club with at least one new joke, which is um, fairly conservative, yeah. I think. For so There are people who probably do it a lot more. But that really, um, she told me that early, and I try to do that now. And the spider, and and sometimes I have stuff at the ready that I'm like, oh, I want to try this, and it, it, it coalesces into a bit. And then sometimes I'm like, fuck, I have to think of something to like write about. And the spider bit was that for yeah. me. And it was like just in Boston. I was like, oh, okay, I'll try this f- stupid shit about spiders. And then as I was preparing to put this set together and scrounging for material that was clean enough to be on television, I was like, 
listening back to those sets and I was like, oh my God, I truly did those, that joke in Boston that weekend and then never, never did again. it again yeah. uh, until I started doing it again in the lead up to this Corden set. So the first joke in it is the bad at driving joke. Yes. Which is, you have you had an earlier bad at driving joke. Yes. <laughs> which um, is a joke you cannot say on television, no. I don't think. How how is this one different? How did this one? Um, so I guess like the the first one was was coming more from just like playing on this stereotype. It was like backwards because it was like I knew that the stereotype existed about Asians being bad drivers, and I was like, you know, sort of at that point when I was writing a lot of jokes, sort of playing with stereotypes and playing with like, inverting them and sort of subverting them. That's where that came from. And it sort of came from like, and this was like even pre, there's like sort of a funny online, if you're an online person, like especially on gay Twitter, like the idea is, is that game, gays can't drive. And this was pre this, but it was sort of like, it's that was sort of the germ of it, of, of like, what if I'm not a bad driver because I'm Asian, but I'm a bad driver because I'm gay and sort of talking about dick sizes and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's still one of my favorite jokes. Yeah. Um, this one was much more a reaction to moving to LA and, and really experiencing that look that I talk about in the set, which is making eye contact with someone and and seeing the rec and recognizing in their face the like ugh of course yeah um, and in fact I think one time early in L A driving I cut somebody off or did something and I saw him mouth the words of course <laughs> and I and it is like the deep like awfulness of like being like oh my god I just confirmed something for that person yeah. and like the theater of it of just like and of the how unfair it is that like. No, like you don't know my background. You don't know that like I'm bad at this because I'm a millennial. <laughs> like not I'm bad at this because I'm a bad person, not because uh like whatever you associate with Asians. Like and so that that joke really like came from that place. It's interesting because though it is it it's clearly about that one thing, it from hearing you talk about it, it it's similar to conversations you've had about Rep what people say in comments and YouTube channels and representation yeah. and, and what does it mean and to, so doing it on a late night show is sort of like a way of talking about <laughs> isn't it I'm this a way of talking about it without talking about yeah, it yeah absolutely I found an earlier clip of you doing this joke uh -huh. the only major changes is you say if you get better at driving I will die in this Honda okay <laughs> that's because um, in the earlier version of the joke I had not bought my Sentra yet <laughs> Uh, I'm, I think the, the earlier one is from when I was in Melbourne for whatever reason I was driving, I was like still renting back yeah. then. And I, I had, I have since bought a Nissan Sentra, which is so, for some reason funnier to me, yeah. um, than a Honda. I think cause specificity always is funnier. Yeah. And but, just even the, going the extra step of n not just a Nissan, but a Nissan Sentra. There's also a uh, consonants of the N's. Yes, that is, that is much better. Uh, I don't know. It also might, you know what, thinking about it now, I might've changed it because of Australia, because I, I, maybe I tried it there and they don't have Nissans. I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. I've deeply, that was two days after I stepped off a plane in Melbourne for the first time. So I was probably feeling very crazy. The other change is instead of, uh, in the Corden set, you say, I think I don't like wearing my glasses. But in the Melbourne version, you say... It's because I have bad night vision and I text, okay? Yeah, um, this, this I changed those to the reasons I'm bad at driving a lot. And the reason I changed it from night vision to glasses is because as I've sort of 
shaped this character or version of myself. It goes, it, it feeds more directly into the idea of I'm a bad driver because I'm a bad person. Yes. Rather than something about me that I can't control. Like, um, night vision, because honestly, <laughs> I do have bad night vision. And in fact, I in a few years, I won't be able to drive at night. Um, it's getting to the point yeah. where I, I sh- it's, I'm a danger to people uh, by, by driving at night. And that is, so that's like the real thing. That yeah. is like more like when I said it on stage for the first time when I was workshopping that joke I was like going to real I was going to the real well mm-hmm. um and but as I was like thinking about it from this sort of POV of the character I was like oh no it needs to be something that is something I can control and, yeah. it, and like the idea of someone like refusing to wear their glasses because they're they make them look ugly like there's it tells like a very specific yes. story I think if you really want to think about it, texting is is obvious, and and not and refusing to wear your glasses, both those things I think play into a, paint a, a bigger, a better picture, a clearer picture than night vision. So bugs. The next joke is bugs. Yes, this uh, was a this was a fight to actually get this on because it's political in a way. Is it was because of for the politics? It's the of it? Roy Cohn. Yeah, the Roy Cohn of it at the end really um, was. They were like, a we don't know that anyone will get it, and b. It is like AIDS adjacent, like AIDS crisis adjacent. And it just is so esoteric in a way that like it didn't feel like worth trying to put in. But for some reason, I was like, it was very important to me for that end part of the joke to get in. And I don't know why. You can tell the audience does not get it. No, no, no. And that's why you, and it's a cheat. It's a cheat to be like, I'm so glad some of you laughed at that or something like that. Yeah. And it, get, it it does slide into like the stupid stuff pretty well. Um, but it is like a cheat. I, I, It's a pet peeve of mine. And I try to do it as little as possible when something doesn't land. But I hate the like, oh, you guys hated that one. Or, yeah. oh, uh, it's that's new. Still working. You know, like yeah. any editorializing on stage about jokes. We all do it. Every comedian does it. I do it. I did it last night at the Improv in Irvine. You know, like we all do it. But it is like something that like it, if you fall back on it too much, it can become a crutch. Because they audiences really almost always, if they're, rooting for you if they're on your side will laugh at that editorialization um but yeah so using that in the joke i i I was like in my mind i was like i can justify this because it's transition into the next joke best case scenario it works unlikely but best case worst case scenario doesn't work which then seems like oh i'm setting up the thing anyway exactly you've said that it takes a smart person to play stupid i think so yes that that. does sound i know you've said said. (laughs) i know you've said (laughs) You've said this on a podcast. Yeah. Um, what's the value of say, having your smartest joke or having a smart joke before? Explain that a little bit further as it transitions here. Why it's important that this audience goes like, oh, I'm about to go into this stupid stuff. Let me make sure they know this is a smart person. Yeah, I guess for me, like it's, it's like a signal, I think, to people. Because it is an esoteric joke. It's not a joke that... Uh, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to be at a point in my career where I can referentially like play in a space where I don't feel beholden to make sure that every single joke every is for every single person in the audience. And so, like for me, especially in a five minute set that is going to be seen by millions of people, I was like, I I do sort of want a little bit of who I am as a person to like peek through and so it's a it's a little bit of a signal there and i think it's a little bit of a a way to make sure that they know i'm in on the joke of my own stupidity and like i have always been not like intellectually um anxious but like 
I I've always been a person that has has centered like knowing all the things I don't know or, mm-hmm. or knowing how much I don't know. I read a shit ton and I know there's uh that I'm an intelligent person, but I'm very not well. I don't like to big dog people in that way, and I don't like to like go in being like I'm an. It's just there's something like I'm I'm much more uh, pensive about the a lot of things than I than I think a lot of the internet has made a lot of people and like that's sort of the point of the stupid joke is like is what i see is like people in my friend group really who are intelligent people who we're um like being so willing to like put themselves out there intellectually in a way that i find so like can't we all just like step back for a second and like ask more questions yeah and like sort of like not seem like they know the answer yeah like turn it in your like sort of let things sit and marinate in your brain um, in a private way, I guess like this is my thing. Like certainty is a poison on the internet yeah. for me. Like Twitter, especially, I think like everyone has to go in and have their th- their their statement be and be certain about what they believe and why they believe it. And like it is so weird because I'm I don't know I I find like I'm not like I believe this about Venezuela, but I'm <laughs> like, but I'm not I, I would never like deign to like shoot it out onto the internet with certainty because there's still so much I don't know. I related to it in so much as when I became a journalist and started getting jobs and working at like a magazine where I was like, oh, these are who the smart people are. The smart people are like, they've read all the things and they know this and they reference books and where I would only reference The Simpsons or whatever. And I imagine there, as you get further and further into comedy, you're sort of met with these sort of smart comedians regardless of how smart they are but they are like their brand is how they're smart comedians or they're like they believe the whole like we're philosopher kings or whatever yep. the hell. is this sort of rooted in how you feel around comedians and also in the last few years where like comedy is important uh-huh. what does it mean for you to be like i'm gonna be stupid on stage i think i mean it's so important to me because like you think about what like we're constantly confronted and asked to think about like what it is we're actually doing here comedians and like we're in this sort of proliferation of like festivals where we're all together and like the internet where we're all sort of thrown in together and asked to analyze and like question and i do think that there's value in like it, it, a lot of people, I think, want to have it both ways, where they want to be Carlin and they want to be the philosopher king and they want to be like, what I'm doing here is important and I'm spitting truth. And then uh, when faced with any sort of outside criticism yes. from people who aren't in the comedy world or something like that, um, they they really balk at that. And they're like, it's just it's just a joke. Yeah, the and Dave Chappelle. Like, I have another thing about Dave Chappelle where Dave Chappelle wants to be like, I'm, I'm just a silly guy still. And then he's like, please take me as seriously as you would take yeah. anyone on earth. And for me, it's really hard <laughs> to square those two things. And so I've sort of dis- like I-, I sort of split the difference, I think, a little bit because the thing is is it's really hard to intellectualize why you're laughing at something. And like I, you know, we talk about this all the time. Like other comedians, especially early in my career, I would get the criticism of like, oh, you're just going on stage and being gay. And like, you know, it's persona, it's persona, it's not jokes, like write a joke, write a joke, write a joke. And now, you know, I'm at a point in my career where it's truly my jokes per minute are pretty fucking up there (laughs) um, on stage. And and that a part of that is New York and what it does to you. But I think like I was so obsessed with making sure that I had written the setup punchline and that it was a pure joke. 
and and if I ever got whiff of something in my set where I was where I didn't understand why they were laughing, mm-hmm. like where I understood that it was a little bit more nebulous, it was a little bit more like that intangible space of like the energy that I provide yeah. and like the persona that I am or something like that. And I am sort of just like giving up on that because yeah. it's like nobody wants to think too hard. Like we should be doing the thinking for the audiences, honestly. Like I think a lot about why um, the the POV of a joke and like what in society is recognizable in it and, and why people are comfortable laughing at it and, and, and like what is surpri- how to surprise an audience. I think surprise is like one of the most important elements of writing a really good joke is not seeing where the conclusion is going and that, that, that sort of turn at the end is really important. Um, and like I think we should absolutely be thinking about that. But at the end of the day, like it's all happening so fast for audiences that in the moment, especially live, it's like you don't want someone thinking too much about it. You just yeah. want that gut check of like, oh, they're laughing. Let's take a break for a second from the comedy to be so very serious. Look, if I know you, which I do, I know you've been frustrated with your phone service. We've all been there. So I've got some honestly pretty cool news for you. There's a new phone service out called Visible. Long story short, you got unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to 5 megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network for, dramatic pause, 40 bucks a month. Dun, dun, dun. There are no annual contracts, no hidden fees, and no stores. That's right, you never have to walk into a phone store again. Thank God I hate stores. Learn more at Visible.com. You... You used to have jokes about your appearance. I remember yeah. your album ended with something yeah, like... So great. I, we're kind of coming to the end of our time together, um, which I'm sad about. I know, but there's only so much time you can stand to look at me. Um, so I want to... And you, you've described your persona now as a hot idiot, and we'll talk a little bit more about being yeah. hot later, but um, <laughs> not to get all Nanette, but sort of why <laughs> why, isn't, why self-deprecate oh at all on stage? Um, it is so... Um, unfortunate that i i do reference nanette is um not i made this change before nanette but she did um articulate it in a way that sort of made me realize oh that's what i that's why i changed to because like um you know i'm in a very toxic uh subculture of the society gay men like the male gaze is on me too you know i'm one of the the many men who's lucky enough to feel that uh, pressure uh, in a way that a lot of straight men probably don't feel, um, you know, my, um, and um, I've struggled a lot with body image issues and, and feeling good about myself, both because of the way that Asian American men are sort of viewed and it's all connected to masculinity as well. And like all of that stuff is like, was a stew of bad things. I have terrible skin, you know, like all of this is like, was a part, was like running in the background, especially in my early twenties when I started doing stand up. And it's easy, I think, especially when I was coming into it as like, oh, everything's got to be raw and real. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> that was for a time, like everything I said, on stage has to be like the uh, you know the truth and the and confronting and like let's hold up mirror up to society sort of bullshit and um that's fair and i think like when i was doing that um at the beginning like it made sense for me then but then slowly as i you know in, in therapy and just sort of on my own did a lot of work on myself and a lot of work on like my self esteem and like i i think it just became 
unhealthy for me because it wasn't it no longer became authentic it was yeah. like i was like talking down about myself in a way that just like didn't feel real and then here's the other thing is that i think for me creatively because i don't i am not as confident as the person i portray myself to be on stage or on the internet bar none like i still have a lot of fucked up things going on in my head that i have to deal with on a daily basis as we all do i don't think it's as interesting for most people to hear about because i know that conventionally i am attractive and so like who wants to hear that person yeah. complain about <laughs> the neuroses in their head but I also think creatively it's a more interesting choice right now anyways in comedy because yeah. we've just like everyone every comedian is ugly and talks about being ugly like it just like it and like or being like uh, in terms of like the power dynamic between myself and an audience like this is uh, I pride myself on being able to walk that line of you need the audience and I think for so long like especially minority comedians, Asian comedians, gay comedians, both of those com s sort of subsets needed to put themselves below the audience in a way in order so that they could feel comfortable to laugh. And for me to come out and be like, I'm better than you, that's a harder position to come from yeah. to get an audience on your side. To get an, to walk out on stage and be like, I'm the shit and you guys are or should be lucky to feel <laughs> to be looking at me right now. Like that is aggressive and gross and and bad and yet to to it's a it's a much it's sort of it's a carlin-esque sort of like for me yeah. anyway school of thought of like can i turn the audience against me and then at the end of the set still have them on my side is, is the stupidity of it then like a release valve yes, of that absolutely it is a it's, a it's a balancing act because then they can sort of i think like condescend a little bit to me because the other thing i should say is that like people who like are on the bandwagon of like oh my god you're so hot it does occasionally feel a little condescending because yeah. i'm like all right i'm not like i i <laughs> like hot for a what for, yeah uh, like hot for an ex person yes, i think exactly. is is yeah. what i sometimes get is is sort of behind the curtain of some of my compliments online and i'm very aware of that but yeah the stupidity is the balance of that is yeah. that like if i can if they think that I am too stupid to realize that I'm not actually that hot, then like it works out a little bit in my favor. So uh, Gay Dads is next. This is the first time in your set where you say that you're gay. Yeah. yeah. Is that on purpose or what? what? Um, no. You know, it's not something that I think about a, a lot anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely sort of um, something that I thought about a, a lot in that first cycle, I guess, like after dropping my first album and like I am, I talk about my life and I talk about gay issues because it's prevalent in my life and it's, it's there. And of course, like I was told early on, like I needed to tamp that down and I needed to make it broad and blah, blah, blah. For me, like this is just a really good tight joke. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it's a it's sort of a difficult joke too. There was a, you know, I did this joke and I gave up on this joke for a while. This was like one of the first new jokes I wrote after I dropped my album and I was trying to write this new hour, and I gave up on it because I could not get anyone to get on board with it. And you know what's funny about human psychology and I guess like progress the progressive nature yeah. of audiences these days is the thing that turned it was when I started saying, and it sucks because we're so much better at it. 
that was the key to unlocking this joke for me because I would go in and I'd be like, yeah, I don't think gay people should be raising kids. <laughs> uh, gay men especially were put here as population control, blah, 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 blah. And like people would get really turned off and yeah. I think they still do a little bit. But then I say that and that again is the, the release valve, I think, because then people are like, it signals to them like, oh no, he... This is this is woke. He's still woke. Like he's yeah. not he's not a bigot. Like he, you know, this where it's okay for us to laugh at the rest of this. Yeah, I, I think I what I found really interesting about it. So you came up in stand up comedy at a time where like people were doing gay marriage material. Most people were doing pro gay marriage material, yeah. but like no gay comedian was like, why do we want to get married? Like that stuff. That really everyone was like a collective front we need to be like gay marriage is good what is interesting with this joke and i think i hear a little bit more like john early does some stuff about this which is it like directly confronts a certain sort of like gay as gay respectability presentation like why what does it mean for i guess society or your comedy (laughs) that this is now like you can take this stance of being like okay now that we got these rights i mean it is a it's a it's an absolute like sort of a privilege of my of the generation of gay men that I I'm in right now too I think um because like I, and it's a reflection I think of of my politics as well like I'm not ardently like and like aggressively like gay marriage it shouldn't be legal I shouldn't but I was I was always one of those you know, uh, annoying people on the internet where it was like, what about em- housing <laughs> protections and employment protections before this other yeah. thing? That Because those things are things that uh, affect all of us. And like th- a lot of my jokes boiled, start from this place where of like obnoxious, like, um, political stances that I <laughs> very important to me and I'm like how can I water this down into something stupid Yeah, <laughs> and that the gay dads thing is like something that I said because I did I mean this was something I think I said at on the gay beach in New York because these two guys brought their their twins same mom same surrogate same eggs different sperm each and and both born at the same time yeah and I'm like this is I, I guess great for them. I'm so happy for them. And also this is ridiculous. And they're at the gay beach and like, just like sort of, it, it was like a moment where, and I said, to, I leaned over to my friend and I was like, those guys misunderstood the assignment um, completely because this is not it. Um, and like, it's judgment. And at the end of the day, I don't give a shit, like do whatever the fuck you want. But um, that is sort of the, the, the culmination of that. And then I was like trying to think, pushing myself to, I, there was like a moment in my life where I was like really pushing myself to do more analogies on stage well this I was, I, it's so funny because I was like is this his first big metaphor yeah I don't I'm not that comedian and yet um, I think especially because I was feeling really neurotic after the album came out and I was touring and I was like I don't want to be touring on this hour anymore. I think partially because I was bored of a lot of that material and partially because I was like, I had a lot of delusions that most of the audience had heard the album, which is, sure. I can assure you, not the case. Yeah. I, I could probably still do half the material from that album and people would think it was brand fucking new because yeah. nobody bought that album. And I think, so for me, that was like a period where I was like, I got to sit down and like really push myself to write a metaphor joke. And that was sort of where I landed. And it's good. I'm glad I did. Maybe I should should drop more albums and feel more neurotic about that but um that's <laughs> I, sort of where it is you mentioned that is it comes at a time where you assume the audience might know this is you mentioned your dad and you say your dad has two sons and it's you do not post the earliest said acknowledge that you're adopted do you find yourself like 
allowing the audience not to have to know everything about everything for you to tell the joke. Is that sort of what is born out of? I mean, like, or you're sort of like, well, that part of me is already in the story. Uh, it just wasn't. I I'm an editor at, at heart, and for me, like thinking, especially getting all of this in in five minutes, I was like, um, for that joke to be funny, they don't need to know X. Yeah. Um, when I do that joke in my hour when I'm touring, there's a there's there's moments where it's set up, but honestly, it's the deepest frustration of my life because I feel like I will constantly have to write a new version. I have a I literally have a new joke about my name right now. That I do, that I throw in to explain my goofy name, and it's like it'll never be better than that first one. Yeah. But uh, for some, but it's like I, it is something weird. It is something about me. And I, for a while, was like maybe I can get away with never mentioning. It. And it's like nah. Like they need to, they need to know that my pam, my mom is white for a lot of these jokes yeah. to work or make sense. Yeah. Um. And so it's like the never-ending writing exercise for me is writing jokes about like that that are very quick and simple to just like get that in there. Yeah. But for that, I was like, uh, they don't need to know uh, that it's it's not a part of it. The next part is you uh, being murdered by the strangers. <laughs> um. So there's yeah. a change there, which is, uh. The line after, because my thing is, if I'm being murdered, I'm still being picked, change from, uh, I don't do well with rejection to, and this is ultimately uh, the point, to, and ultimately that's the point of dating, either way you get to stop. Yeah. What does that change of the joke mean? Um, I think for me it was a, a, a economy of words Yeah. at the end of the day, because I'm very, like, I don't know, like, I just like to, the, the thing about New York um that that is something that was born in me in New York because like in Chicago most open mics you get 3 to 5 minutes and so which is not a lot of time yeah. but it is still enough time to like sort of feel your oats a little bit on stage and 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 especially for someone like me who writes on stage it was really easy for me to just sort of like tell and wander around a bit in New York I'm waiting 2 hours to do 90 seconds of material every single night 3 times a night yeah. and when you are only doing you know like uh what is it like four and a half minutes of material every night um you get you learn really quickly where the three or four seconds actually does matter a yeah. lot um and so for me i think that was just like again like always always finding places to cut always finding places to get to the joke a little bit faster or make it clearer i think it either way you get picked is is um sort of a clear image for me the the guacamole joke which you uh <laughs> You've said you do not remember, but I think the most interesting part, or the it is your most performed joke. What do you mean? It's a lot. Not you. You're moving a lot. Okay. You're, there's a lot of dynamics, vocal yes. dynamics. Was there a conscious decision, like I need you to do more types of things? This is where I really. Um, I remember this moment actually in New York when I wrote this bit. It is a more a joke about me being funny than it is a joke on paper that works really yeah. well. And it's it, it is, is your joke, most personality. Yes, joke. it is a joke that only I can do and 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 get away with. <laughs> like <laughs> and or there are there are other people. Like I actually think like I was watching a lot of John and Jacqueline. John Early and Jacqueline Novak yeah. had a show at the time at Cake Shop and they and I was doing a residency at the, they they did this goofy it was a weekly show and every month they would let one comedian do 15 minutes every week for 4 weeks. And so I would go and I was like watching Jacqueline Novak is like she's top 3 for me in terms of like people that I look up to and and like uh, it's just so funny and it's hard to capture what is funny about her. Again, I don't know 
I don't know. It's just like, and so I was really influenced by that. I yeah. think uh, sort of style of like, you know, people, it is like a, it, it hits something inside of them that is recognizable. And yet it, it is not something that they can sort of intellectually uh, uh, explain why it's, it's funny. Yeah. And so for that joke, I think requires a few more like bells and whistles performance wise. And that is sort of where I landed. And, and, um, it's funny because the, I actually rewrote this joke, never had an ending. This joke was certainly never supposed to be a closer Yeah. when I was doing it on the road and stuff like that. And, um, Beth Stelling is actually the one who told me that she said, if I wrote a better ending to it, it could be a closer. <laughs> well, so active. Yeah. Um, and which the, I think the closer, which is, and I didn't get a second date is the ending of that. Yeah, um, that's why yeah. I'm surprised well, that, you didn't have an ending. Yeah. That I actually don't normally say on the road. That is just for Corden. That was just to sort of like put a have button, button yeah. on the the Corden. The lava kick bit is what I Yeah, it's a big when yeah. I was like, "Oh, I guess I should put this at the end of a late night set because it is a, a clean joke." Yeah. It's like one of the I I knew that it was something that could get in on TV. I was like, "I need to write a better end." Uh, like uh, sort of a second part of the joke yeah. that never existed before. I, in fact, do I do that in the Melbourne set too? Do I do the guacamole bit in no. Melbourne? Okay. Um, but anyway, I was like, yeah, this this joke needs that. And so like I spent the, like three weeks before the Corden set, before I um, writing that part of the joke to try the, and make it more complete. Your your first Conan, ha- is a, it's a very like, this is who I am, this is my story yeah, yeah. type of set. The Corden set is more like, this is what I'm like. This is how I think. You know, what do you feel like this set communicated to the audience? It, it is. A, it's like a good encapsulation of like the persona now. Yeah. You know, like it is like I'm moving away from the identity. Not. I don't want to say I'm moving away from the identity stuff because it's still all running in the background. But it is less biographical, I think, now in a lot of ways. Or it's less. It's more. It's much more heightened. Yeah. Biographically than it is. Like I, Key and Peele said this thing. Um, uh, to Zadie Smith when when they had their show that like really stuck with me, um, and it is so the ethos of like the way I write jokes now is that people laugh at the mythologies that they recognize to be false, and like that is like a very um, fancy way of talking about hyperbole. Yeah. So that is I I I usually like go back to that quote and go back to that frame of mind when I'm thinking about something that's funny cuz like it's it's partially just stuff shit that I say to my friends that makes them laugh yeah. that I don't and that does not even ping to me as a joke until I see someone laugh at it and then I'm like okay how can I take this sort of un this like weird like unformed thing and then I take it to the stage and just sort of rehab that conversation but with a with an audience and then I'm like how can I mythologize this concept and that is where the punchline comes so like the setups that make people laugh or just stuff that starts in conversation and then i mythologize it and that's the punchline and and that is really most of those jokes are the product of that of just of, of that way of writing a joke i think we'll be back with more joel kim booster after this word from our sponsor Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain. 
and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. We are back with Joel Kim Booster. We talked about a little bit, but uh, let's talk about being hot. <laughs> okay. I should note uh, that as you talk about, you were good looking before yeah. you sort of, what we're talking about when the idea of Joel Kim Booster as a hot person is... Uh, I feel like Pat Regan said it best, which is a porn quality body. <laughs> uh, That's psycho. To, that is actually psycho to me because I, I, I was literally just said to my trainer today. I think part of my body dysmorphia comes from the fact that I'm watching porn every day. <laughs> like, because he he's a straight man. And I was like, you don't have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's one of the things that sets us apart. I will say this about like making this a part of the persona and part of the act is that it started as like a political statement about like Asian men specifically. I think like I started saying it before I really believed it sometimes because I was like, you know, we're clowns, we're emasculated, we're seen as less desirable. And I was like, fuck that, let's, and so it, and it only works because people believe that. Yeah. Because people do believe that. And that's the fucked up thing about me like centering my hotness on stage is that it really truly only works because I'm coming from not from a place of privilege like yeah fuck Matt Broussard can't do that I mean he does do that because he is forced to because he is everyone recognizes him to be hot but yes. when I walk out on stage and I say I know I'm hot and it's annoying for you to hear about it half the audience has to check themselves and be like yeah yes yeah, you it becomes are. subversive even though it yeah. yeah and and so like unfortunately like until society looks at me the same way they look at matt broussard yeah it, it it's it for me it's fu it's still funny and it's, it's sort of sad in that way and then the other thing is is i think my actual physical hotness is maybe caught up with the bit a little <laughs> bit because it like fitness 
is like this the more successful I've gotten, the less control I've had over my life. And mm -hmm. this feels like one very easy thing that I can control yeah. about my life. Like when I had a day job and I was doing stand up and touring, it was like that felt very regimented and like I love a nine to five schedule and I love knowing what I'm gonna be doing every day and and not having that is very hard on someone with my brain. So I mean there's been quote-unquote hot comedians. I mean, you feel like we grew up at the same time of like, Dane Cook, part of his thing was that he presented as like, I'm a sexualized yeah. person. But um, you've talked about like, Guy Branham has the thing about gay men, either like go-go boys or drag queens because yeah. they're either entirely sexualized or entirely desexualized. I've talked to John Early about sort of the difficulty of gay men watching gay comedians where they don't know if they're just sexualized versus female comedians where they can just laugh at it. Considering that, you know, what does it mean what is that line that you have to walk as sort of like presenting yourself as hot in that hmm. way? Yeah, I think, well, A, it's the thing that we were talking about of like, you know, especially in front of gay audiences. And I'm like, yeah, I'm hot. Like half of them chuckle because I think they think it's a joke because they don't think I'm hot. Yeah. And like, and I'm fine. And I'm, if I'm, I'm fine with that. In fact, that's, I, again, I know I can get away with it because I know that that's partial. That's 50% of the reaction. But I think like, with the game, with gay audiences especially, it's difficult, I think, because we, and it's changing. It's definitely changing because I, I, I have so many gay men that come in uh, to, my, uh, to my shows. And I think it's because I'm speaking in a way that isn't like presentation. It's like I'm talking about gay shit for uh, uh, gay people. Yeah. And I'm not trying to like talk about gay shit for straight people. And I think that is something that gay comedians, a trap that a lot of gay comedians before have sort of fallen into. And it's and the thing is, is like aesthetically, it's not that different. Like I'm still talking about sex and I'm still talking about, and I'm, I present, I am, I am a stereotypical gay man on a lot of fronts, you know? Um, and I'm not trying to change that about myself. But the thing is, is about like, it, it's not about, um, like oh I shouldn't uh, like X Y or Z like Jack is not uh, a bad character of a gay man because he's a stereotype it's because he's only a, it's a yeah. two dimensional thing yeah. and it's like I think there's enough in my set and enough about my sort of what I'm presenting and putting out there that it feels three dimensional because the thing is is like gay stereotypes exist because a lot of us do like fucking pop music and a lot yeah. of us are big old sluts and a lot of us are frivolous and this and that and the other thing but there's we also have inner lives yeah and like I think like I'm sort of deepening that in a way and I'm very proud that like I'm I you know like there's if you don't recognize that yourself in me. I think that's the problem with like a lot of gay audiences is that we grew up having to queer other people's stories yeah. and like find ourselves in Muriel's wedding or like these other like sort of iconically quote unquote queer films that aren't actually gay, yeah. but we just made them gay movies because they, we were able to queer the narratives of those, of those movies and put ourselves in uh, the, the closest thing that we could find to uh, telling our stories were these, these movies starring women. And now I'm walking out on stage and I am standing there and I'm saying explicitly like, I am telling a gay story. And they're like, that's not my story, though. Yeah. And so it's very hard, I think, when there isn't the sort of gray areas to sort of fill in our own blanks, to, to project our own parts of ourselves onto these, like, queer near, like, movies or television or me as a stand-up. It becomes, like, it. there's, like, an automatic, like, like, that's yeah. not me. I can't recognize that. But 
I think I'm trying what I'm I'm really really trying is to split the difference between like being like I am representing all gay men which I am definitely not yeah and just allowing space for people to for me to be like I am an individual who also is gay and it's okay and like if people think that we're all like me that's not a problem for the community that's a problem for the world writ large who can't who has no imagination in in between the the Conan set and the Corden set I was thinking about the sort of new an exposure to gay audiences that maybe did not exist in certain ways in so much as one which is sort of how Brooklyn and now I imagine East East part of LA, that scene has become way more gay than you would ever imagine, even like five years ago, four years yeah. ago. Um, it is incredible. It's one of the great comedic things I've ever seen, how this change has shifted, where there are gay audiences. And then also you start doing gay cruises, yeah. which is a, a different audience, which is sort of, and like gay cruises are, cruises in general are seen as sort of this like yeah. lower brow thing. What has both of those sort of done to you as a comedian? Well, the cycle has is, is been so quick, right? Like, the cycle has been so quick because there was a time when, like, we were only allowed to do gay cruises and gay shows. Yeah. And there was, like, two circuits. There were two communities. Like, these, like, gay comedians that a lot of people saw as hack. And because and they saw them that way because the references were so um, only for gay people. Yeah. And they couldn't play in front of street audiences. And, and I don't see that as a lesser thing. It was just, like, they were playing to their community and that's dope. And then the cycle became, like, I'm a gay comedian, but I play straight rooms. And like that was sort of seen as like, okay, that's better. And now I'm like, I feel very like lucky that we're there's like this all this bridging of the gap of like the audiences are, are sort of merging. And it's not that um the co- comedy audience has changed. It's just that the comedy audience has gotten bigger. Yeah. And like I think that's what you're seeing a lot of like resistance from like mainstream, like straight boy, like big J Okerson, like assholes who are like the comedy audiences are getting like more pc or lamer or less like apt to laugh or something like that and it's like no dude you just have to share (laughs) like they're your you those that that audience that laughs that laughs at at asians have small dick jokes they still are out there and they still exist it's just now there's a larger um group of, of comedy literate people so what does it mean for your comedy to have had these now audiences emerge for you um, I don't, uh, it's, it's interesting. I feel a little bit more comfortable, like, um, splitting the difference referentially. Like there are, there are a million jokes that I wish I could make about poppers and like, uh, you know, sh- like gay bars and shit like that, that I just like, no people in Boise don't, don't know, you yeah. know, but I've always, there's always like little Easter eggs in my jokes that are just for the people that will get them. And I've never been, con- I've never been concerned about like, Oh, like, don't talk about that because, like, that will alien. Talking about eating ass is going to alienate, blah blah blah. Like people in in the Midwest at these clubs in Bloomington, Indiana, and it's like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna make sure that there's enough there that everyone can laugh at. But there's gonna be something that is special for the people in my community because that's where I'm coming from and that's what I want to do. And yeah, 
And that's, I, I will one very quickly, I just want to say it's very frustrating to me when I see people criticism of my work being like, oh, another gay comedian that only talks about sex. And it's like, I don't see myself that way. I see myself as a sex comedian in the same way yeah. that Dane Cook was a sex comedian, yeah. in the same way that Nikki um, Glazier uh, is, a, is a, a comedian that talks a lot about sex and the same way that Lisa fucking Lampanelli talked about sex. You know, like there's a whole class, like I don't, I put myself <laughs> in that. Yeah category of com- of just comedian big c and it's frustrating that they think it has anything to do with me being gay if i were a straight man with this personality i would be talking about sex just as much you know you've talked early on about people in chicago would be like oh you're just telling gay jokes or whatever even though you're just like you're like i'm telling john mulaney jokes I'm ta- sort of- yeah i'm talking about dating and i happen to be gay so in uh in 2016 you wrote on medium after the pulse nightclub shootings um, <laughs> i can't believe you found my media <laughs> <laughs> i found i found a lot of stuff uh, but you wrote I, I wear the gay comedian label with pride in the same way i do a word that i won't say that starts with the letter f, f okay <laughs> i know you're likely or in the case of the latter definitely trying to say something hurtful but all i hear is better at art but as a comedian, that's sort of balance doing these jokes in Corden and doing these jokes in Gay Cruises and Brooklyn and then being on NBC. At this point now, what does it mean in 2019, 2020, whatever was it mean now for you to be a quote unquote gay comedian? It's a paradigm shift, I think, because here's the thing. Like, I think about it in terms of like the gay section of Netflix. And we all sort of it's like the joke that like 90 percent of those movies are shit, but we'll watch them you know, because that's what we get. And I think about it the same in the cruises is, and I I would like to say, I would like to shout out specifically Brad Lokley, who was the first comedian I ever opened for in Chicago, um, who has, who does every single Atlantis gay cruise and is one of the best comedians I've ever had the privilege of working with. So, so funny. And if he were my age, if he would come up at the same time as me, he would be a huge fucking star. And it is a a damn shame that he is of a different generation. And I think, uh, you know, and he still has time. I don't know why I'm talking about him like he's de- dying, but he's so yeah. great. But um, and I, and I want to separate Brad from that because there is there are cruise ship comedians and gay comedians because I think there there's this idea that like because our community for so long would accept hack shit, that is what that we should we should you know you work to the audience's level yeah and it's like no like here's the thing if you want to say like that guy's a gay comedian i know i'm fucking great at what i do i know i travel around this goddamn planet and i make people of all fucking walks of life laugh and so if that can shift the paradigm and suddenly the idea of going to the gay section of netflix means you're looking at high quality movies like yeah. and changing and, and re- removing that stigma then god bless like yeah i'm gonna go on that fucking cruise ship because a it's a, it's a free vacation for me <laughs> and i have a good ass time and b those people on those cru- and that cruise ship deserve cerebral well thought out jokes yeah. just as much as the next person they don't need to hear another joke about the fucking cafeteria workers on the boat you know yeah. like just because they're on a cruise ship and and that is sort of where I'm at from it is like I think I think there's a lot of comedians I can think of who are like I don't want to go and do that show at that gay bar because they only want to hear a drag queen humor and it's like no, go into that gay bar and give those people the same fucking good ass shit that you're going to put on, uh, yeah. you know, in a comedy club. And they will rise to that because they, <laughs> the gay people are smart, too. <laughs> yeah. And so that for me is what that really means is that like, yeah, I, I just want to shift that paradigm a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
So that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, is there a joke you'd like to steal in a way that no one would know you stole it, but you can sort of have it. It's a sort of different dimension. Everything's the same except for you have this person's joke. It's yours. It's always been yours. Oh, my God. I mean, I can tell you really quickly three people who would fit in that realm, and it would be uh, Naomi X. Paragon, Jacqueline Novak, and and um, and John Early for sure. I, I, just because... It, of the quickness I, and it, she's fresh in my mind Naomi's um, stop jogging at dusk and dawn <laughs> oh god she's the funniest person yeah. she's Naomi Experian is so, is so so funny the Megan Lindsay's Sarah's you gotta stop jogging at dusk and dawn is something that I would steal and take with my own in a, in a heartbeat your play Kate and Sam are not breaking up it's currently selling on Amazon for $1,500. That is not true. Yeah. The only, you can only buy it, like, someone has two used copies and they're selling it for $1,000. That is so fucking funny. If you're listening to this and you want to read that play, email me. I'll send you a fucking Google <laughs> Doc with it because you don't need to spend $1,000 on that play. That's so funny. I did know that the people who published it originally went under. Um, I had no idea that someone was selling um, them. That's so funny. Yeah, that was it. I just wanted to let you know that oh, that thank was, you. It was insane. Uh, can you do an impression of yourself? Uh, that's uh, between every joke. Uh, uh, and like a lot of you knows and likes and ums. Um, that's the only thing I hear when I listen to myself. Do you have a joke that doesn't work? You can never get an audience to laugh at it, but you'll go to your grave thinking it's funny. Uh, <laughs> a, uh, a few. <laughs> what is one? Um, one that I have that is, uh, I had to start doing the revolving door of, of strangers joke that is in the Corden one right now. And this actually, this has maybe a 40 or 35% success rate. And it is for the people is that, um, oh, I'm on the apps all the time. And I'm, uh, when I'm traveling and, and uh, I'll invite people over from the apps and my friends get nervous and so the first thing I always do when I get to a new town is Google to see if there have been a rash of disappearing gay men for one because I don't want to get murdered and also because I can't help solve another mystery <laughs> I'm there to, I'm there to work okay but I will crack the case and that's the joke and I think it happens so fast sometimes that people are like wait what but again it is like this mythology of me as like a gay detective is yeah. so funny to me that image but yeah it never works I always do it though all right interview over okay that's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Fire Island on Hulu. Psychosexual premieres on Netflix on June 21st. Loot premieres on Apple TV Plus on June 24th. Follow Joel on social media at I Hate Joel Kim. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. God Shin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs>